It's time for justice. Welcome to the Central Virginia Legal Aid Radio Show, heard every Wednesday from 1230 to 1 p.m. on 97.3 FM WRIR and at www.wrir.org. I'm your host, Marty Wegbright. This show was written and produced by Central Virginia Legal Aid Society. We give free, civil, non-criminal legal aid to low-income people in Richmond, Petersburg, Charlottesville, and surrounding cities and counties. Coming up on this week's show... If a woman is sexually assaulted, the first thing that she wants to do is go shower. She feels dirty and she feels like she needs to clean herself off, and that's absolutely the worst thing to do. What she needs to do is immediately call the police, go to the emergency room, and basically have a rape assessment done so that the evidence is preserved. I can't tell you how many women call me that have been the subject of date rape or the like, and they wait to call the police, they wait several days, they've showered, the evidence is destroyed, and it becomes that woman's word against the perpetrator. So preserving the evidence is critical in these situations. Private attorney Colleen Quinn talks about women's injuries, whether from assault, sexual assault, or rape, and explains how these cases are presented from initial evidence gathering to trial strategy. And during this week's news you can use, we'll talk about new opportunities for health care coming soon for more than 600,000 Virginians. All that and more coming up. Stay with us. The show is supported in part by a grant from the Virginia Law Foundation. This show, number 203, is the sole responsibility of Central Virginia Legal Aid Society and gives only general legal information. If you have a legal problem and need specific legal advice about your situation, contact an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, we'll tell you later in the show how to get free legal advice or representation in a civil case. The Central Virginia Legal Aid Radio Show is heard every Wednesday at 1230 on WRIR 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, and online at www.wrir.org and is made possible by community radio volunteers at WRIR. And now, this week's news you can use. Starting October 1, 2013, more than 620,000 low- to moderate-income Virginians will have new options to find out how to access quality, affordable health insurance, according to a recent report from Families USA, a national nonprofit group that promotes expanded access to health care. And a whopping 88% of them come from families where at least one family member is employed. The help will come from the new Health Insurance Exchange, a marketplace for private insurance plans and consumers, being set up under the Affordable Care Act. Open enrollment is scheduled to begin in October for coverage that will start January 2014. In addition to helping consumers find coverage, however, the exchange also is set up to help people pay for coverage. Tax credits are available to people with incomes between 100% and 400% of the federal poverty level. For a family of three, 100% of the poverty level is about $19,530 a year. 
For that same family of three, 400% of the poverty level is about $78,120 per year. Just how much financial help will people get to pay for insurance through the exchange? The amount will vary based on income. The lower your income, the bigger your credit, and vice versa. The amount also will depend on the annual premium of the plan purchased. The tax credits are calculated so that individuals pay no more than a certain percentage of their income toward the cost. Let's use a hypothetical annual premium of $5,000 for a single individual to illustrate how the tax credits will work and the amount of help available. Individuals who make $11,490 per year, 100% of the federal poverty level, will generally be expected to pay no more than 2% of their income, about $230 per year for a health plan with an annual premium of $5,000. That works out to less than $20 per month for health insurance. That means their credit is worth $4,770. At the other end of the spectrum, individuals who make $45,960 per year, 400% of the federal poverty level, would receive a credit of $630 on the same plan. That leaves them paying $4,370 per year, or $364 a month, 9.5% of their income. For more information, go to familiesusa2.org slash assets slash pdfs slash premium dash tax dash credits slash virginia dot pdf with this week's news you can use this is your host marty wegbright It's time for this week's question and answer session. We're here in the studio with this week's questioner. Tell us your name and where you're from. Debbie from Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to the show, Debbie. What question do we have this week? I got a phone call from someone that they were going to file a 1099-C if I didn't make a payment arrangement. I didn't know what that was, so I said, do whatever, but I just wondered what this was about. Well, Debbie, that's a great question because this is a tactic that is becoming increasingly common among debt collectors to pressure people to pay debts that they shouldn't pay and possibly even don't owe. A creditor is required to file a Form 1099 with the Internal Revenue Service when, during a calendar year, it discharges or forgives a debt greater than or equal to $600, except when the discharge meets one of the exceptions that's in the IRS code. Now, those exceptions are so big that they pretty much swallow the rule. The Form 1099-C is sent to the IRS, and then the forgiven debt can be treated as taxable income that you have to pay tax upon. And, of course, that's going to cost you money, and that's why the debt collectors use it as a means of pressuring you to pay them rather than having to pay taxes. Now, 
only the principal amount of the debt, not any interest, not any fees, are treated as income. And the reason for that is that interest and fees were never available to you. That was never money that you had to spend. Only the principal of the debt, the amount you actually borrowed, was money that you had to spend. And since you didn't pay it back because they forgave it, then that's the logic of treating it as income. However, debt that's been discharged canceled or forgiven cannot be treated as taxable income, first of all, if the discharge occurs in a bankruptcy case. But the IRS code also excludes from gross income the discharge of any debt that occurs when the taxpayer is, quote, insolvent. The only limitation there is that the amount excluded can't exceed the amount by which the taxpayer is insolvent. Now, insolvent simply means that you add up all of what you own and you subtract all of what you owe. If there's a surplus, if you own more than you owe, then you are not insolvent. If you owe more than you own, then you are insolvent. So if you're, you know, $40,000 in debt and you have, let's say, $2,000 in the bank, you're $38,000 insolvent. And if you're insolvent, then a forgiveness of debt through a Form 1099 cannot be treated as income. And that's what most debtors don't understand, that this really is an empty threat, because even if they turn in a 1099, it's not going to be treated as income if you are insolvent. And most people, I think, who are facing a 1099 are insolvent. Is this information helpful? Yes, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. We're here in the near west end of Henrico County, and we are at the Women's Injury Law Center. We're speaking with Colleen Quinn, who is the attorney who runs the Women's Injury Law Center, and of course, we'll be talking about what the center does. Welcome back to the show, Colleen. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, glad to have you here. And would you give us an overview first of the Women's Injury Law Center and the types of injuries and cases that you see? Glad to, Marty. There are a variety of different injuries that seem to impact women a little bit differently. And one of those are traumatic brain injuries. Given women's multitasking abilities, they just tend to be harder hit when they have a traumatic brain injury. So that's that's one of those injuries. We also tend to see a lot of what I call salon and spa type injuries where somebody will go to a salon, had one lady who had her hair completely burnt off when she went to get it colored. We tend to also get a a number of uh, medical malpractice type cases, what I call kind of the botched boob reduction cases. And then we specialize in civil recovery for criminal acts, especially sexual assault and rape situations. So um, the Women's Injury Law Center really has a a niche area in which we try to serve women in a, a variety of different injuries. And would you tell the listening audience, why do you think it's important to seek a civil remedy for a, a criminal act or a particularly a sexual assault? Great. The, you know, unfortunately, Marty, the, 
the criminal justice system punishes the perpetrator but doesn't necessarily provide the remedies that some of these women need, especially if it's a, a rape or sexual assault and they need extensive ongoing counseling. Many of them are diagnosed with depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. So if we can look and see if there's the possibility of any sort of civil recovery beyond what the criminal justice system does, um, then that better enables these women to heal and to move forward. And as I understand, preparing a case like that almost begins the moment the sexual assault or the criminal activity is over. Do you have tips for people to follow so that they have a better chance of recovering, even though that's obviously not what they're thinking about at that very moment? Right. It's unfortunate because if a woman is sexually assaulted, the first thing that she wants to do is go shower. She feels dirty and she feels like she needs to clean herself off. And that's absolutely the worst thing to do. What she needs to do is immediately call the police, go to the emergency room, and basically have a rape assessment done so that the evidence is preserved. I can't tell you how many women call me that have been the subject of date rape or the like, and they wait to call the police. They wait several days. They've showered. The evidence is destroyed, and it becomes that woman's word against the perpetrator. So preserving the evidence is critical in these situations. Taking photographs of any cuts or bruises, making sure that the clothing is not washed, um, that it's kept. In all these cases, it's just critical to not touch or move anything and to make sure to contact the police immediately. Then once the police get involved, they do an excellent job of gathering and preserving the evidence at that point. And is that evidence later uh, used and admissible in the civil trial against the perpetrator? Yes. If criminal proceedings are taken forward, then the civil case just kind of sits in the shadows. However, after the criminal case is over, any of that evidence used in the criminal case can then be turned around and used in a civil case. Now, is it necessary to pursue a criminal warrant before you have any chance at all of recovering civilly? It's best to try to pursue the matter criminally first, especially because the police and the detectives have the ability to go ahead and gather and collect that evidence that a, an attorney in a civil case doesn't have the same power to basically search and collect evidence that the police and, and detectives do. So even if the criminal case is not successful, at least by having pursued the criminal case, a lot of this evidence can be preserved that otherwise might, might disappear. And what is the impact if the criminal case is not successful? I mean, does that damage your civil case? And if so, how much damage does it really cause? It depends on the case. If the criminal case is thrown out for a technicality or something, I mean, the criminal case has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. A civil case is more probable than not. So the civil case, the burden is just a little bit more than 50%, which is a much a lower burden than in a criminal case. So a lot of times we can prevail in a civil case where we might not have prevailed in the criminal case. The other thing is that in a civil case, what we're trying to prove, the theory of liability might be a little bit different. And I'll give you an example. I mean, it's, it's a pretty egregious example, but one of my clients was raped, robbed, stabbed, 
and essentially wrapped in duct tape and left to suffocate and die by the maintenance apartment maintenance man who came into her apartment at 11 o'clock at night. So he was basically prosecuted and sent away for many, many years. Um, But what was interesting about that case, which a police detective um, sent to me, the police detective had seen this gentleman's five-page rap sheet and knew there was no way that he should have been hired by this apartment complex. So what we do is we try to look and see, is there a third party that might have prevented this situation from happening? And in that case, the apartment complex never should have hired the fellow. They hired him through a temporary agency. The temporary agency failed to do its due diligence. The apartment complex gave the man the keys to the kingdom. They wouldn't let my client put a deadbolt on the door, and which would have been the, the last line of resistance. And so they essentially set my client up, you know, for this situation to be attacked by a man who had prior convictions of armed robbery and felony cocaine possession and a whole series of other criminal convictions. Which is a good segue to my next question, which you've largely answered, which is under what circumstances can not only the perpetrator of this crime, the sexual assault, be held liable, but also some third party be held liable? What's, what's the rule there? What's the standard for holding that third party liable? It depends. In the situation I just gave, you know, this, the standard is that an apartment owner, just like hotels, railroad providers, common carriers, they all have a special duty to protect the folks that are using their services. If a restaurant owner knows that there are crimes happening on his property and fails to take you know, basically precautions, et cetera, then we might be able to find some liability. Um, sometimes uh, schools can be held liable, especially if they know that a student has previously committed date rape and then they don't do something about it. So there are various ways that we can look to see if there is third-party liability. It can include negligent supervision, negligent hiring, failure to have adequate security, a whole variety of different civil claims. So is the standard here that that third party, whether it's the employer, the uh, apartment complex, the school, whatever, is the standard that they knew of the risk or they should have known of the risk? Can both either or one or both of those be used? That's generally the standard, although we have, you know, different claims out there, the general basis for holding them accountable is they either knew or they should have known and they should have done something more. Now, what kind of damages can you actually recover? I mean, what does the victim have to have actually suffered to recover damages? And, and what are we talking about in terms of actual recovery here? Typically, it has to be something that's relatively severe. And a lot of times when we look to the person that has caused the crime, the perpetrator, a lot of times they don't have deep pockets. So we have to look and see what is a potential source of recovery. I had a case where one of my clients was attacked by a drunk on the Amtrak train. And so the gentleman was drunk as a skunk. And basically, we had pictures of bruises all over her breasts and her thighs and when he attacked her on the train. And we first looked to see if Amtrak was liable for continuing to sell beer to him. Well, it turned out he brought an entire case of beer himself on the train. So it was clear we couldn't hold Amtrak liable. Fortunately, he had condominium owners coverage. And fortunately, he claimed he accidentally fell into her when the train went through a curve. 
So we were able to show that he was claiming it was not an intentional act. It fell under his condominium owner's coverage, and we were able to get a recovery for her. So we have to be a little creative in some of these cases when we look for sources of recovery. Even if somebody uses an automobile to try to hit a woman, for example, opening a door to try to attack somebody, we can tap into the automobile coverage. So we're always looking to see, you know, what's a source of recovery for these women. And what about the um, homeowner's insurance, uh, particularly in the case of an apartment dweller, a, a tenant who is a victim of an assault? Have you found you can use that as a source of recovery also? Yes. Rental owner's insurance and also homeowner's insurance are all potential sources of recovery. I've got a case right now where my gal was basically hit at school during a drill team routine by another student. And of course, we are looking to the student who hit hers, homeowner's insurance, as the source of recovery. Now, that might strike most people as being really odd because the school is nowhere near the home, but you're saying that the homeowner's insurance covers a lot of places simply beyond the home? Correct. The homeowner's insurance covers the occupants of the home, including when they might be out and about and might do something accidental to somebody else. Now, earlier you had mentioned the um, spa and salon injuries, and I thought that was a, a unusual source of injury that I'd never even heard of before. Can you tell us a little bit about those types of things and what type of recoveries you can possibly get for folks there? Absolutely. And I'll tell you one thing, Marty, it makes me terrified of going to the salon or spa anymore. I definitely check out the credentials of anybody that's working on my hair. I had the one case where the lovely lady, she had lovely long brown hair. It was all burnt off when she went to get it colored. And her hair grew back in these little kind of Dr. Zeus kind of tufts all over her head, these kind of wispy little tufts, and it, it never really grew back. We also had another lady who had her hair braided so tightly that she had massive headaches. But worse than that, the hair braid was so tight that it opened up her pores to the extent they got infected. And she got infected with MRSA and ended up in the hospital for eight days with drainage tubes coming out of the, the areas of infection. So there's another lady, too. She went in for a little lipotherapy, a little fat dissolved from her tummy, and, and she unfortunately contracted hepatitis C. So we, those are just a few examples of some of those types of cases. Well, thank you very much. We have been talking with Colleen Quinn. She is the director, the head of the Women's Injury Law Center on the near west end of Henrico County as part of the law firm of Lockpart and DeBoer and Quinn. Thank you very much. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Welcome back to the Central Virginia Legal Aid Radio Show on WRIR 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I'm Michelle King for the Central Virginia Legal Aid Radio Show. Here's this week's Legal Aid Success Story, a true tale where justice prevailed. Allison was 35 years old when she plummeted to the ground from a three-story building. She was immediately rushed to the hospital and underwent extensive surgery. But despite the best effort of her surgeons, 
Allison suffered permanent damage to her vertebrae. The orthopedic department provided her with a wheelchair and informed her that she might need a titanium cage to support her back. Just as she was reeling from her new debilitating condition, Allison was notified by the Department of Human Services that she was being terminated from her general assistant program benefit. Despite the objection of her personal physician, the Department of Human Services doctor thought Allison could handle working up to 30 hours per week. She contacted the Legal Aid Society of Hawaii in desperate need of help. Despite being represented by legal aid at her Department of Human Services hearing and providing detailed records concerning her debilitating condition, the hearings officer determined that she was, in fact, able to work, and her benefits were terminated. Legal aid also was representing Allison in applying for Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. Interestingly enough, she was granted SSI benefits despite being required to prove a higher level of disability for SSI than for general assistance. Thankfully, Allison's income was not interrupted during this process due to assistance of legal aid. For the Central Virginia Legal Aid Radio Show, I'm Diane Dusseau, and that's this week's Legal Aid Success Story, a true tale where justice prevailed. That's all for this week's Central Virginia Legal Aid Radio Show. This show is heard every Wednesday from 1230 to 1 p.m. The show is the sole responsibility of Central Virginia Legal Aid Society. To see if you can get free civil legal aid, call during in-tech hours. These are Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. The phone number is 200-6046 for intake, 648-1012 for the main number, and 1-800-868-1012 to call toll-free. If you have any comments on the show, you can email them to marty at cvlas.org. In addition, every first-run Central Virginia Legal Aid Radio show ever broadcast is available at www.radioforall.net. That's radio, the numeral four, all.net. Then click the contributor link, then click Marty Wegbright, Central Virginia Legal Aid Society. This show provides only general legal information. If you have a legal problem and need specific legal advice about your situation, contact an attorney. If you can't afford one, call Central Virginia Legal Aid Society. In late March 2013, National Public Radio broadcast a week-long series, Unfit for Work, The Startling Rise of Disability in America, which painted a misleading and inaccurate picture of the Social Security disability programs that serve as a vital lifeline for millions of Americans with severe disabilities. Join us next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. when we present a special report that corrects the distorted views advanced by this series. That's Law for the Rest of Us next week on the Central Virginia Legal Aid Radio Show. I'm Marty Wegbrink.